0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Spark Hub. My name is Alan, and today's guest is fascinating. His name is Brad, and he runs the Connects Academy, not far from where I live. Now, Brad fundamentally believes in one thing, that you can achieve anything you put your mind to. It's certainly a philosophy that uh, I share with Spark Hub, and frankly, finding all the sparks that can get someone to there, to believing they can do anything, to executing well in adulthood. And so you'll hear the tale, of how Brad got to this conclusion and executed it himself. I won't give too much away, but it weaves through international intrigue, through 9-11, through struggles, through death, through life, through rebirth. It's all there in this episode. So without further ado, please enjoy the episode with Brad. And as always, if you like what you hear, you can always dive into more in the show notes below. Thanks for welcoming me to your place. I'm really excited to talk to you. And as is tradition with SparkUp, we start with a quote. What's your quote? Uh, I've got a long one. If you bring positive
1: change to the life of just one child in your lifetime, you potentially change the lives of hundreds more. One day, they may be the head of a dynasty of their own. They may have the effect on the lives of many others while they're getting there. And if you set them on the road with a confident and positive attitude, they lift people up. If you let them go through life damaged, well... Everyone knows about Columbine and down Blaine. Wow. And who's that? Who wrote that? That was um, Graham Wenders, um, who was my father. And uh, it, was, um, it was from his book,
0: When the Laughter Fades, which he published. It was published in the week before he passed away in 2017. <sighs> it's a very deep quote. Now, can I just say that it's, it's you know, what I'm doing with SparkUp is exactly... I think encapsulated by that quote, I'm trying to find inspiring stories that spark an interest in children that put them on a path that pay off in adulthood. So I couldn't have asked for a better quote for this, <laughs> for this podcast, but um, I'd love to just start with, with your father and your background and, and how we ended up sitting in this wonderful location. What's all this about? How I mean, I, how much
1: time have we got? This it's a long and wacky story. Um, so I, uh, uh, Graham was, was actually my stepfather. He, uh, met my mom when I was six years old, five years old, turning six. Um, my parents were separated in, uh, in the Christmas when I was um, young, and I didn't see my, my biological father for quite a lot of my life. And even now, <clears throat> we've got just the most odd, weird relationship. We, we don't speak for years. We, we don't particularly get on. It's very, very strange. And, and Graham was my father. He was my father figure um, from that age. And I'm now 39, turning 40 next year. So it's, uh, it, was, it was a big loss. When he got sick, um, he came to live with us. Um, and we kind of looked after him, made sure he was okay until his, his last year of life, and then he was in Farley Hospice, who are amazing. Absolutely, man I can't, I can't speak highly enough about the people at Farley Hospice over in uh, in Chelmsford. So that's that's a little bit about Graham. And, and I guess where do you start with Graham? He was my my primary um, male role model through life. Oh, I think we need to go back in further. So. Um, Graham was, grew up in the Isle of Wight and wanted something better. The Isle of Wight is a very small island. There's not mm-hmm. a lot going on there, so he moved um, to he moved to Brixton and then he moved uh, up north. And he was a he was a bricklayer. Um, uh, I think Brixton, Barnsley, then Brentwood. He liked the bees. I think <laughs> <laughs> had to do um, a tour of the bees. Yeah, and and settled in Brentwood, which is where he met my mum, who was a single parent, um, aerobics teacher uh, at the local leisure centre. And we grew up. And uh, when I grew up, we didn't have any money at all. I, I never once in my childhood went on holiday abroad with, uh, with my parents, with mum and, and grand. Uh, we used to go and stay on the Isle of Wight with his parents, <clears throat> with his family. You know, but when you're a kid and you're poor, you don't know you're poor. That's just no. life. You know, It's fine. So I'd have holes in my shoes and, and we'd eat very simple dinners and we'd never go on holiday. And never, you wouldn't know that, that that was different to anyone else. Um, I lived in a one bedroom flat and my mum slept on the sofa for a few years. That was just life. Um, and looking back, I'm like, wow, that, was, that would have been really hard. You know, I'm an adult now, and, and actually I'm, I'm now a parent. I've got a, a four-month-old baby, so I've just become a parent. And I'm not, in this cost-of-living crisis and the crazy world we're living in, I'm like, that must have been really hard through yeah. the late 80s, early 90s. Um, so you've now gotten a bit of an appreciation for that. But but we used to just go down the woods and play and We'd build dams in the river. Then the next day, we'd go and smash the dams. So this river got... And it was great. And that was that was the, the summer when I was six. It was one of the best times um, best times I can remember. It was just fun every day. Um, and anyone who's, who's ever met Graham would know what he's like and would have some understanding of the impact he's had on my life. Um, so when I uh, wanted to go to a particular high school, and uh, we didn't know which high school I wanted to go to. We lived in Chel- Chelmsford and... Uh, and the schools in the catchment area, to me, weren't great. Even at 11 years old, they weren't,
0: they weren't bad schools, but they didn't really fit what I liked to do. I was quite creative and quite... Um, what I, I dare say energetic, too? It's, yeah, um, a little bit. <laughs> looking at your body shape now, it looks like you've honed it over... Uh, oh, I'm well out of shape at the moment. This, well, is, this is a year I, of...
1: <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I was, I was always quite... But, <clears throat> but I didn't really like traditional sport. I don't like football. I don't like rugby, and, and that's not the thing for me. I tried these things. Um, so I got involved in some martial arts, really enjoyed martial arts. But again, it wasn't, wasn't passionate about it. I quite liked it. And Graham was a very, um, very avid martial artist. And so we saw on, on TV, of all things, there, were, there was this gymnastic team that was on two different TV shows when I was young. I watched them on You Bet, so I don't know if, if people remember that show, um, and on Blue Peter. And it turned out that they were Essex-based. And we were living in Chelmer Village in Chelmsford. And, um, and the other side of Chelmsford was a school called Chelmer Valley High School which is where this gymnastic team were based. So my parents, they they wrote to school, can we go here? And we applied for it. And it was 1993, 94, I started the school. And I remember someone had to come to my primary school and interview me. And and it was a bit of a palaver for for an 11-year-old thinking, everyone just goes to high school. What is this? But because we were out of the catchment area, we had to ask to go there. And it wasn't a private school. It wasn't um, anything like that. It was just a standard state school. So when I went there, I thought this is a special school that I have had to interview and get into. And then I saw the people around me, and it's just a—I don't want to belittle people, but it was just a regular school. And some people wanted to be there, and some people didn't want to be there. But I went as an eleven-year-old, excited to go to this school that I had to have an interview for. And um, and and I I remember very, very vividly going um, to find the teacher who ran the gymnastic team when I was in the first year. Um, And I went to the PE department, and he wasn't there where's where's mr ford they said oh, he's um he's over in the technology department I'm like, oh okay so i wandered over to said walked in and i said uh sir who, who's, who's mr ford he's like me stern old man I said, um about the the blue falcons gymnastic team like, what about it boy but like, whoa okay like, wow this guy is intense um and it turned out he was a previously a PE teacher and he'd gone into technology and and he ran this gymnastic team and uh and I tried out, and, and that was my life. You know, that was, and, um,
0: and that was, it was out of passion suddenly. So everything yeah. else fell short of that. And yeah. then you found that, that thing. Like lightning struck. Uh, and I mean, I, we performed in
1: front of royalty by the time I was 12 years old. I traveled around the UK doing massive shows. We were quite heavily tied to the military. We used to do lots of performances at military tattoos. We did the Royal Tournament. By the time I was 12 years old, I performed in 20, 25,000 people. Um, and it was all performance and display-based. We didn't do competitions. We would go and do performances and displays. And it was all about being tricks and crowd-pleasing. And it was great. It was old-school military gymnastics, which um, no one really does anymore. So lots and lots of, like, intricate timing and routines and things. Great fun. Big teams. We had a team of about like, 50 at one point. And I ended up – that was, like, my thing. And it didn't matter that we didn't go on holiday because we did s- displays through the summer. I thought, why are you going on holiday? We've got that, that festival thing we're going to. Um, and my parents both got involved in the gymnastic team, and they helped out, and they drive people around, and end up doing things like the t-shirt orders and catching people and all that kind of stuff that they, they do. And we moved house so we could be closer to the school. Like looking back, my 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 life, my, my family's life was very me centric. Like it was very child first, which was, um, you know, that was my life. that I didn't know any different. Um, and they bought this, uh, this ex council house over in Braintree, uh, sorry, in in, um, uh, in Brumfield, that was. Um, I mean we didn't have any plaster on the walls there was no there were no hardly any floorboards and we didn't have a boiler and they bought it um as a probate house and done it up um I remember the prices then uh, we moved in 1996 um bought the house for 55,000 pounds for a three bedroom semi with a big garden and a driveway um and then sold it for 125,000 pounds a few years later so I mean those figures now are crazy in <laughs> yeah, yeah, terms of the world of but but um yeah that that was that was it and uh, But Graham's upbringing had been from – he didn't have a close relationship with his own family. Okay. Um, He was not particularly close with his sister until very late in his life. Um, And they weren't particularly well-off family. His dad was uh, a woodsman for quite a long time, and his mum worked at Woolworths. And his great-grandfather, Grandad Tom, um, was – he was a military firefighter and before that he served he was in the Somme um, in fact we were looking at photos of that this week because we have Memorance Day so I was looking at photos of, of um, what I regard as my great-grandfather Tom um, in a trench
0: in the Somme cigarette in mouth loading a rifle and we've got these photos they're, they're incredible. Um, but this whole line seems to have a, th- a common theme to it even though you're not blood related to Graham it seems like the love of sport and specifically kinetic type of sports. Yeah that's sort of Led to where we are today. Yeah. Where you are today, should I say?
1: Absolutely. And and what I firmly believe is that there's something for everyone. And if someone comes here and they don't enjoy this, I'm not going to hassle them or pester them because it might not be for them. Wait,
0: let you, we've jumped ahead. Sorry. So we've okay. The foundations right. Sorry, Um And then how did, how, I guess I'm trying to look now for the bridge between that kinetic beginning to suddenly now i guess this is your business and you run it and you you founded it and
1: yeah you, well i guess and that,
0: we'll, we'll talk about what it is in a minute but maybe that's a little bit of a jump because if we go back to i stayed with that
1: doing gymnastics until i was in my 20s then we, we did a, a tv reality show it was the first year of french got talent 2007 and myself and some friends went on there and we did some acrobatics and jumping around and we'll get to how we formed that group in a minute and, and that's really what sparked everything off so we did that we got through to the semi-finals of the show and Um, no one really knew anything about the only thing that had been like that before had been the x factor and i wasn't a singer so we didn't have any idea what to expect and it was massive millions of people watching and um getting recognized in the street and all of this kind of crazy stuff and then just like that when when we went out of the show in the semi-finals there's nothing gone you know suddenly you're just walking through london with a bag on your back and people like, hey were you on tv last night "Yeah, yeah i'm just on my way home thanks um but that really sparked off the interest that there could be something here and and again coming back to So the Graham and the way I was brought up, Graham was a a bricklayer. Um, He was a builder. He ended up uh, being project manager for uh, railways things. So he was project manager on uh, Blackfriars Bridge when that was rebuilt. So he was a hard worker. He'd be doing night shifts. And when I was young, he would be working building site in the day. And then we'd be doing taxi driving at night. My mum would be working in, generally she worked in finance or admin, and then would be teaching aerobics in the evening. So I grew up with parents that worked a lot of hours and we still didn't have any money. And I think we always want to have at least the same quality of life, if not better, than our parents. And, and I was brought up saying, "We work hard, and don't you don't end up here. Don't do don't do what we've done. Don't make the same mistakes we've done. You know, you need to, you need to do something." I had a few jobs. Um, I went travelling uh, when I was eighteen. I went and worked in an American summer camp, uh, which was amazing. Um, and I then went back two thousand two, two thousand three. So. Let's, sorry, I'm jumping a little bit. But I'm Wait, to, was
0: this your first overseas trip? Because you, you said you never traveled as a kid. But
1: I had was... actually been on a couple of school trips abroad, so I'd okay. been to Europe. But it was my first. So getting on an airplane at 18 years old, on my own, yeah, no one I knew, sitting there on an airplane, going to New York was, was an experience. I went to work in New York in 2001. And I was still in New York in September 2001. I was going to ask. Yeah. Um, and that was one of those... Um, it was difficult. I was at the top of the World Trade Center on the 7th of September 2001. I've got photos of being at the top of the towers in 2001. And I've got stories, and I'm sure lots of people have, of someone who overslept and someone who was supposed to be down there that day. But we had flown on the 9th. It must have been the 9th. flew down to Florida. But this was in the days before social media. Mobile phones were kind of calls and texts. And so my parents didn't know where I was. As far as they knew, I was still in New York, but we just got this red-eye flight down to Florida and I was, I was in West Palm Beach. Um, and my phone started ringing on the morning of September 11th. And, I was like, oh, and the, the people I was traveling with were like, oh, your phone keeps beeping. You know, put it on silence. I was like, oh, this. But it was my mum. And then I got a text saying, um, well, they've now, now they've hit the Pentagon. Like, what the hell's going on? So we've turned the TV on just in time to see the second tower fall. Like, whoa, what, what's going on? We were there, you know, Two days ago, so we kept a close eye on the news, and we bought these bus tickets. Um, to, so, because we were going to go back up uh, the east coast, so we were in Florida, and we were going to go up, and we were going to do Washington. We we're going to go all up to Boston, and we we're going to have a couple of weeks of traveling. And I said to the guys I was traveling with, we like, I just want to go home. But our flights were only valid from New York, New York airports. We bought open end returns. Oh, I mean, flights were closed anyway. And I remember we went to the bus station, um, the Greyhound station, and said, we just want to go north we go north and we were told state lines are closed you won't be able to get out of florida okay fine but we'll just go north because we just need to get home so we've got on this bus and security police are everywhere as you would expect it's a nation under attack and we went uh we we got up to jacksonville and we then the, the timeline's a little bit blurred for me i, I just because we just sat on this bus um, and we sat on the bus and we got north and when we got north um, they said okay we're opening state borders so you will be able to, by the time you know we've had a bit of a wait and we've refueled you'll be able to go North, there's no way we're going to get any further than Washington, D.C. No, because we just can't, we just can't. Okay. And I remember the, the next night we got to Washington, D.C. And we were allowed into the city. And we were not, not into the city, but around it, so we could go up. Like, okay. And my experience of Washington, D.C. was getting off of one bus and onto another one and then carrying on. And I said, okay, well, we keep going north. We will absolutely not be able to get onto Island of Manhattan. It's completely closed off. We won't be able to get there. Okay by the time we got up there, it's about, I mean, a straight drive is about 30 hours. So it must have been... I've done it myself a couple of times. Yeah. I'm from Montreal. So oh, okay. I'm, I used to, yeah. So, yeah, you, you're very familiar with that. I'm the, very the I-95. familiar with that route, yeah. <laughs> um, and we got, we got to Manhattan um, and we were in New Jersey and we we're going north. And, uh, and we, will, we were in the first some of the first vehicles to get across. They were prioritizing public transport. And I, I will absolutely never forget going across the bridge onto Manhattan and looking south and just seeing this was like a couple of days after this dust plume where the towers once were and the wind was starting to blow it north and that plume and that big like huge amount of dust what used to be these buildings was still there just hanging in the air it was it was eerie i bet it was um the people i were traveling with thought, well we still want to go to boston we also want to make most of this trip like, absolutely not i just want to go home you know? so i went and um uh I went and got into a, a hotel and just stayed in my hotel room. I went out, with some food in my hotel room. And I flew home from um, JFK on the 16th of September, 20, 2001. Um, probably the safest flight you're ever going to get on. Of course. They took my, my hair clippers off me. They took my toenail clippers off me. And I was wearing some like sandal flip-flops, and I had to put them through the X-ray machine. And there was uh, the pilot still at the door, um, and a little sign saying, pilot um, reserves the right to refuse journey to anyone he doesn't like the look of. Right, fine. Okay, good. And that was that Virgin Atlantic had put on loads of flights because it was a huge backlog. Um, so they'd sent over loads of flights, and, and they did quite a good thing to get um, British people back to, to the UK. So I, I got home um the 17th of September 2001 and then went back again in June of 2002 and then went back in 2003. 2002, uh, I didn't want to go down to ground zero or do any of that. but Of course. Um, and 2003, I did. I went and saw the memorials, and I've been back a few times since with work and what I have you. But I know it's quite a long story to get to. I was 18 years old. None of my credit cards worked. I had some cash in my pocket and I was staying in a youth hostel in Florida with no real means of of getting back because the the country had completely locked down, completely shut down. And I got thousands of miles back to an airport and flew home. As an 18-year-old who'd never traveled before, quite proud of myself. (laughs) I was going to say that's a big introduction. Yeah. Oh, is it always like this. Um, And that really spurred on something that i've been told throughout my whole life is you can do anything you yeah. know whatever you want and it's never going to get any worse than that and the friends i made and the, the contacts i made and even working with kids it's like oh i like this and i was um, i was supposed to go out there to coach gymnastics but i ended up working on their rifle range because i had limited experience with air rifles and shooting competitions in this country um, I'm a British teenager. I'd never played with a gun before. And being taught by ex-military guys how to strip down a rifle and use these bolt-action 2-2 rifles, it was yeah. great fun. Um, and it was an experience I'd never had before. So I worked on this, this rifle range. I was a general counsellor, so I spent um, 22 hours a day with the kids. And then for two hours a day, I'd be on the rifle range. It's intense, but it was good fun. And, and the, a lot of those kids I still stay in touch with. And I kind of got to the end of, of that time, and, and I started to, to um, think, well, what do I want to do with myself now? coming up for 21 years old and it's 2004 um, and I should probably do something and I I was still really enjoying the gymnastics and I did a few jobs here and there and I worked for various places but I wasn't very passionate about any of it and then I got involved in these guys doing free running and parkour it's my gymnastic experience I actually got involved in skateboarding skateboarding is something I really like to do and I was at the skate park. I saw some kids jumping around at the park. So being a bit of a showman, I went over and did some flips. And they like, wow, that was amazing. Where would you learn to do that? I was, oh, I've been doing gymnastics for 10 years. Um, so I took them to the gymnastic gym and they took me to, to London um, to meet these free runners, these parkour guys. In 2004, when I started doing parkour um, and going to London, and there were very few people doing it. And as a slightly older person, there was a lot of teenagers and I was 22 which was quite old at the time. I took them to the gym, taught them some gymnastics stuff, and they showed me some free-running stuff, and we'd be running around the city every weekend. Early 2005, the documentary Jump Britain came out, and then there was that huge influx of people. So parkour, just was that the year it really took off? Yeah. Would it around that time? 2005 it became a thing. really took off, yeah. There had been a, a few bits and bobs on TV. Yeah. The French guys had brought it over. Um, uh, like it was one of the first sports that really developed on the internet sending out videos, although a lot of, a lot of the uh, early French guys, who were about 10 years older than me, so they would be now be approaching 50, used to send out DVDs in the posts to film producers and things, which I think is how Luke Besson got in touch with them for, or how, found out about them for um, some of the projects he worked on with him. So parkour became this, this thing. I was like, I really like this. It's, there's a lot of gymnastic stuff. There's a lot of showing off, but there's a lot of um, finding obstacles and challenges, and I, I quite like that. But I now I'm 22 years old, just wanted to go out jumping around all the time and you know obviously my parents like what
0: are you doing with your life you're know, still living at home can i ask a question were sure. they ever big on education were they ever big on saying you needed to go to college and university
1: no no they, no. they never put was, that
0: pressure they just said work hard was the well, version
1: well I, I was it, it would have been an option for me had i wanted to um but i guess jumping back in time a little bit um i I didn't take a couple of my A-level exams because my flights to go out to work in America fell before the exams and I made a decision as an 18-year-old who obviously knows best to forego some of my A-level exams um, and I then had to retake them in the January afterwards, um, okay. which I don't recommend anyone do because it's not a great experience because it's well out of your mind by then. Of course. Um, so I, I, wasn't, I didn't even fill out UCAS forms. I was very single-minded. I, I was, I was going to go to America. I was going to work in America and that was really the end of my plan. And uh, and I did, you know, I did three years. I made some great friends, great contacts, got some great experiences, had some not great experiences, but certainly character building stuff. Um, and now I've come back and I was, I, I worked in warehouses. I worked in milk production facilities. I worked in offices and just would sign up to a temping agency and be like, this is how much I need to earn. And what have you got for me? And I, I you know, I had some great experience, met some wonderful people. But that was all to find jumping around. Exactly. It was, okay. yeah, just to put fuel in my car and food in my belly. That's right um and uh so so that was that and my mum and graham um separated in 2000 late 2007 um just wasn't kind of working out the the financially they'd had a hard time um again some disagreements about what i was doing with my life because like what the hell are you doing with your life graham was working nights um and um was quite cranky to be around because he was trying to sleep in the day but i was at home editing parkour videos and (laughs) And it was a tough time it was a tough time and uh and mum moved into a little flat where i stayed in the house at the, uh, back over the other side of Chelmsford, and um and i didn't see him for a couple of years didn't see him for a couple of years at all and and during that time uh, i was doing lots of performance work so we'd be going here there and everywhere um, i managed to get a job um
0: working for wolverine who are the parent company of caterpillar so make people make boots Okay. Sorry. I'm thinking of the X-Men. Characters. No, no, no. So you're, you're talking about apparel
1: Wolverine worldwide, are the parent company of, um, of Caterpillar boots and they make, um, a few other types of shoe. And, uh, we did some trade shows with them. Um, and I ended up, we, we did a thing in, um, in Barcelona and then we went out to Portugal or we in Lisbon, um, for a, a fashion show and we would be doing tricks and flips and things. And I kind of was the point of contact for them. So we come off the back of Britain's Got Talent and ended up doing some of this like corporate work. We did oh I mean, we did so many silly things. We did the British
0: Fashion Awards. We did um christmas parties for the likes of barclays and, and this of, is all performance right yeah, performance so you're flipping you're jumping yeah. you're parkouring yeah but well, you're not recruiting you're just damp- you're just kind of putting on a show that's right and okay. I'm, I'm kind of calling in favors from friends and other parkour
1: people. Was like hey we've got this like thing for barclays next week do you want to come along and do some jumping around and they're like yeah that's fine and that's kind of how we did the britain's got talent as well so the britain's got talent we didn't really know what to expect and um i remember we were sitting in a cafe with salt and pepper pots moving them around to um to like work out this routine that we'd never done before and went out on stage and did. And we had a guy jump off the balcony and and I did a flip over and and deck and and it was quite well received, but we just had no idea what we were doing. No idea. And it went on like that for quite a while. We were just, okay, we all turn up to this place and just do some stuff and then we'll get paid and go. And because I was that little bit older, not a lot, you know, looking back now, I was really young. I was by this point in my mid twenties and the guys that we're working with were kind of, 16 to 20 ish you know i sent guys to dubai because i was like oh i'm busy that week do you three guys want to go to dubai and do something at the puma dubai marathon they're like yeah what do we need to do i, was like, I don't know jump around us do something they went out there and they spent a week in dubai and, and you know and i'm just doing the organizing I'm like i could probably you know do something with this um and i, I got a couple of emails i remember this vividly because um my mum's flat didn't have any internet at the time and I went and sat in the car park outside Graham's house. Now, I wasn't talking to Graham at the time. Using his Wi-Fi to do my emails when he was at work, right? Because the Wi-Fi router was on. So I was just sitting in the and car. you still park. had the password. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he didn't change it. No. <laughs> and, and I remember that that's exactly where I was when I received three emails on the same subject. And that was one from a, a London drama school saying, we're looking for a skills teacher. We're looking for someone to coach some acrobatics and gymnastics. We found you on the internet. Is this something you can do? An email from someone saying, "I've been in, someone's been in touch with me from this London drama school asking for someone who could do parkour and gymnastics. Are you interested? And another email saying, I've been in your contact from this drama school, gymnastics and parkour, are you interested? So I replied to all three of them, yes, I'm interested. So those two people went back to the school. I went back to the school and they said, well, you know, you came really highly recommended. I, I'm sure I did. I replied to those three emails in that car park that day. Wow. Um, and... And this is what a story, I, I'd done some careers days in school, and this is one of the stories that I, I often tell people. Um, I went to this, the drama school um, to have my interview for this job. Um, bearing in mind, I had very little actual coaching and teaching experience. Um, I'd done the work on the summer camps, and we'd done lots of workshops. We'd been around the UK doing school workshops and things. But really, compared with where I'm at now, looking back, it's like, I didn't really know what I was doing. Mm. But as with everything, someone emailed saying, can you do this? I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? give it a try yeah um so i turned up and when i got there i was a little bit early so i went to the the cafe on site and i held the door open for this this um man with a little white beard and uh, he said thank you young man i went and sat down had my coffee and was just kind of thinking around the side. and then when i went in for my interview who's interviewing me it's the guy i just held the door open for and he said you're the young man who I held the door open." and from that moment i knew i had that job Anyway, knew it. There was, he was just friendly. And, and I did. And a job that I was wildly inexperienced for, that I was barely qualified for, um, teaching people on a degree level course to do skills work. And there was some theory in there as well. So we did some lesson planning. We did some risk assessments and that kind of thing. And so he told me around the site and got my contract. And it was pretty well paid at the time for what I was earning. So I was doing two days a week at this drama school, which then opened me up to a whole world of stage combat. And I'd done some drama and some acting in school and I'd been interested in the theatre, but now I'm I'm just absorbing everything. Because I'm around this site, I could just go and watch everyone's shows and I could watch some people's lessons and I could get involved in projects and just like absorb all of this information without having to pay to go to a drama school. Wonderful. Um and so I I Got a real passion for for some of the weapons work and so the stage combat, which was what this this course was specifically for, acting in stage combat. Um, and then I continued that learning when the school moved over to to Southend. It became much more formal. It was far, far less relaxed than it was. So I continued my training elsewhere. And I'd been involved in um, some through Graham for, for a birthday. I think I was seventeen. Sent me on a, a stage combat course, and and I'd done a few bits and bobs like that because I was always interested in. I'd wanted to get involved in stunts and film and things, and that kind of, I'd resigned myself to the fact that that was quite a hard thing to do. And I'd done traveling, and I'm like in my mid 20s, like, well, I didn't kind of do that. So now I'm coaching people to do acrobatics and parkour while doing some performance work, while having this, this retainer now for Wolverine Worldwide, who are a footwear company. I was going out to Grand Rapids and Chicago and doing this trip around the world, and I'm like, wow, this is. And you didn't have to work in a warehouse. I didn't that. have to work in a warehouse. Yeah. And, and suddenly, in a couple of years, my, my life had just gone to like being really crazy and 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 i remember i went into into the bank once uh, to i think i just pay some money in or draw some money i just I went to the counter i remember the lady at the counter went you know you've got too much money in your current account i sorry no one's ever told me that in my life you're, you're, she went, yeah you've got too much money in your current account we recommend with, with the amount of you've got um you should really open the savings account because you're not earning any interest on in you and now obviously she's just trying to sell me a savings account but i didn't know that I was like, i've got too much
0: money so, so is it, how, what age are you when you hear this message? 24? And, you've, and your whole life you've never heard you've had too much of no. You've had an empty stomach. You've had to fill your car up. Yeah. But at 24 you get this message. So having absolutely no financial savvy
1: at all, I went out and bought a motorbike instead of putting in a savings account. <laughs> but I was, I was on a retainer from that company. So they would give me, it wasn't a huge amount of money. They would give me £900 a month for nothing, simply to not work for other footwear companies. Then they would pay us a daily rate, which was quite a good daily rate, between two and 400 pounds a day to do jobs and events. And then we pay us to do projects like go and make them some films and write blogs and things for them. So there were a few thousand pounds a month just from that direction coming in for doing probably what I would have done anyway, jumping around,
0: filming it. So you're getting paid to do what you love. Yeah. And then, so now you're in your mid twenties, you found your thing. Yeah. Now, are we able to jump to getting to present day? Because clearly you said, you know what? I could do something with this. Yeah. And, and we, can, we can kind of trace it down the next couple of
1: years quite easily. Um, I was asked by – so we had the financial crash in 2008, 2009. Yeah. Because, and, and I remember saying to one of the other performers – and, again, these conversations just stick with you. I said, well, yeah, all well, this financial nonsense is not going to affect us, is it? Because the kind of clients we're working for – we were doing an opening of a massive law firm in central London at this point. I'm in a suit. And we went to the party as guests – And then every now and then in one of the rooms, we'd break out, do some flips and run off. That was a a stealth performance job. We did quite a lot. We'd be at conferences and all sorts um, in suits, pretending we were there and then do a load of tricks when a bit of music comes on and run off. And I was in the changing room with one of these other performers. And he was like, I don't know. I think this, this financial crash is going to affect us. I was like, this company is not going to go bust. Doesn't matter what happens in the world. This company—we we do shows for Barclays. We do shows for like huge, huge things like the British Fashion Awards and what have you. And and he's like, oh, no, no. and I was like, no, not going to happen. Little did I know, even the companies that had money couldn't be seen to be spending it. Right. So the corporate market just bottomed out that year. We'd had a couple of really good years: two thousand seven, two thousand eight. The, the purse strings must have just gone. Yeah. So even the companies that could that did have money couldn't be seen to spend thousands of pounds on people in vests jumping around to their parties, or even having those parties. So I'm like, wow, I had a really good couple of years, now what do I do? And I was contacted by um, St. Albans Council, and they said, could you coach parkour? We've seen some of your stuff. Could you teach this to young people? Just and, a question, this is all word of mouth, right? You're not you're don't have an agent, nope. you're not out you know, putting up ads? And... Nope, all word of mouth, just random emails and phone calls, was pretty much my 20s. Just yeah. people calling you yeah. up. And I was like, yeah, I guess so. I, I guess we could probably coach it. He's like, well, I want to do a regular class for children. There's, now, St. Albans is one of the most affluent areas in the UK, but it does have some areas of deprivation. And there are a couple of areas in the St. Albans where there's kids who are from poor families. Um, so it was a funded project to run activities for these kids. And we did, we did two in Hertfordshire. We did one in St. Albans and one in um, what is now the Laura Leisure Centre in Cheshunt. Uh, which, so we started those up as sustainable classes now, at this point, we managed to get some insurance that would cover us to do parkour parkour qualifications didn 't really exist there, there was the beginnings of the governing body um, that was making some waves in central London and the city and in, over in Westminster, but we weren 't really engaging with them so we myself and a couple of guys kind of wrote a syllabus and we and we went through the basics of like training up some youngsters and getting them insured and doing DBS checks and putting them on first aid courses and all the kind of if you Google, what do I need to run a sports club, do those things. And then we kind of came up with how we would go about teaching this. And we're just making it up, just completely making it up. And that ran for a little while. And those, those classes ran for a few years. The, the one that the Laura Trot Leisure Centre continued running after we handed it over to local coaches. And that ran until very recently. It was, it was great. And, and then I moved. I was living in Loughton, which is where the drama school was. Then I moved back to Essex, um, moved back over to Chelmsford. And it was quite a long way to go to St Albans, so that class came to it. We, we carried on sending coaches there for a little while afterwards, but it just had to wind down because no one locally wanted to take it on. And, but
0: it sounds yeah. like you're creeping
1: into management territory now. Yeah, yeah, and, and without even realising. And that's yeah. not, not a, a big strength of mine, or I didn't think was a big strength of mine, but just organising people and working out the logistics. So we've come back over, and I, I went to the local leisure centre in Chelmsford and, and said, um, could, we, could we do some parkour classes here? And the guy's like, what's that? So uh, there's a man um, uh, named Neil at the, at the Leisure Centre um, and he was one of the managers. None of the other managers like, what are you talking about? Why is this, this guy? My mum had used to teach aerobics there, so I kind of knew the guy and he'd known me, had seen me since I was little. because mum's been teaching aerobics in Chelmsford since I was a kid. And he's like, well, okay, we'll, we'll do a trial. We did this trial and, and quite a few people turned up for this freebie that the council paid for. So we then ran classes at the Leisure Centre and employed more people and over this time um i ended up being involved in writing the coaching standards and we got involved in the governing body i got voted on to the governing body as elected director uh, by the membership as organized parkour became more of a thing um so myself and and some others got ourselves into the um, the board of this of the governing body, and we did that by playing the politics game, which is something I've never had to do before. So <laughs> we were lobbying the other organisations, saying, "This is what we want to do. We want to sort out this coaching standards. We we'll want to sort out the insurances. We want to standardise everything, and make make it easier for people to get qualified, and actually make it easier to run a gym." Um, so we'd been lobbying the organisation. So we went in knowing we'd had the votes. We'd secured the votes beforehand. So we went into the meeting, voted in. Brilliant. Okay, this is what we're going to do. And it kind of took the governing body by surprise because the CEO at the time had been priming some people that he wanted to be on the board. But we'd gone and done the legwork, and I don't think he realised we were that organised. Um, so he was not massively happy at the time about the people that ended up being on the board because it wasn't the people that he'd picked, um, but. We, but you earned your way in. Yeah, That's exactly. That's the bottom line. And we, we played the game. Um, and we were sat on the board for a few years. and We sorted out um, the level one, the level two coaching qualifications, rewrote the level two qualification, um, did uh, our activators course, which was um, for young people pre-coaching. And then I was on the board in 2017 when parkour got recognised as a sport. Um, so I went and met Tracy Crouch, who was then Sport Minister. Oh, wow. Um, and we were recognised as a sport by Sport England or by all of the national sports, uh, Sport England, Sport Island, Sport Wales, Sport Scotland, um, and GB Sport. And then we got, uh, I haven't got any certificates in here, but we got um, all of our qualifications properly ratified by First for sport qualifications. And, and it was an amazing thing. And, and something else I talk about when I go into schools is um, you can do anything parkour didn't exist when i was in school It wasn't even a thing Mm. and then this activity had kind of come about and jumping around and and then myself and a few others wrote the standards got it insured got qualifications for it created a sport got the we're the only sport that has ever been recognized as a new sport by sport england the only sport because everything else existed pre-sport england Mm. someone invented football a very long time ago we're the only people to have gone through the recognition process we did it so we've created this marketplace we create the sport out of thin air and now from jumping around when you were a kid from jumping around, exactly
0: and being told by my parents you can do whatever you want yeah and and so let i, I kind of want to land on two questions first is about how you ended up building this business so <laughs> the, the, the the moment where this suddenly became a thing and it became your full-time thing and then the second question is around what you're doing in schools now and the sort of inspiring stories that you're seeing. So, sure, I guess the, the, the pay it forward element. But let's start with how we ended up with, in the building we're in now. How did this come about? So, the, the Kinetics Academy came about
1: through a, a, a few, um, again, bits of chance. Uh, as, to, as is everything, by the way. It sounds like a domino effect. Yeah, yeah. I, I should really um, play the lottery more, I think. <laughs> So we were operating out of the leisure centre in Chelmsford and I had a lot of satellite classes. And by this point, we're now kind of 2016, 2017, hundreds of kids every week coming through our our doors. We've got um, a van full of equipment. We've got equipment stored at the leisure centre and we're running three days a week at at Riverside Ice and Leisure in Chelmsford and then Dovedales and and other satellite schools. I've got about 10 coaches working for me um, and I'm on the governing body. And I also do... um, through the the kind of combat and the film stuff, I, I, I'm um, one of the choreographers for English National Opera and for other um, film and TV productions as well. And I, I've worked on, I, mean, I was over in um, Bath earlier this year, uh, working on a production of Into the Woods with Terry Gilliam, who's a massive hero of my Monty Python days. So that's the kind of stuff that I've ended up doing from being the kid with holes in his shoes in the one
0: bedroom flat, you know, it's, it's but not, having lots of conversations. One conversation leads to another, doesn't it? And emails in parking lots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just, if someone says, can you do this thing? Just go.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But we ended up here via, via another, someone said, can you do this? And we said, yes. Yeah. So we were contacted by the English cricket board, um, in 2015, they said, could you provide entertainment at every cricket match, every televised cricket match this year? And my then, uh, Actually, we got married that year, so my then wife, or probably fiancé at the time, who was doing a lot of our admin, and she's like, we can't, we can't manage this, we don't have the people, we can't run the classes and do the cricket. So like, the cricket is a lot of money. That's a, a lot of money. By the time we've got travel and we've got that many performers and we've put our bit on top, it's a lot of money. I was like, I'm working today, so I'm teaching all day, can you just just write a brief and make it happen? Just tell them we can do it and then we'll work out how we do it. And we got the contracts. And we did two years of performances for the ECB doing all of the televised matches and that paid for my honeymoon, that paid for lots of things that allowed us to do a lot of things. And we had for the first time a significant chunk of money in the bank and we could actually then plan a little bit more ahead. At that time, the the leisure centre that we're teaching out of was going to be redeveloped. It was a big thing and and the locals weren't particularly happy about the redevelopment. They were going to make a smaller leisure centre in the car park of the existing leisure centre and then sell off a lot of land more car parks and flats and things. And I remember I went and spoke to the legislature and said, look, you're building a new center. If you allow us to have some space, we'll rent it off your market rate. You know, I don't want any deals, any favors, but if you just allow us to have a bit of space, we can have as our own. We can build something permanent. We can run it full time. They said, no. Okay, cool. Thanks. Um, So we started looking around for industrial pro- property. Um, and we came to a lot of people saying no, like because... The rules, planning rules in the UK are very difficult. Um, trying to get a light industrial um, or warehouse to have uh, a use for sport to, to allow change of use is difficult. So of of money we had um, in fact, during this time uh, while we were looking, uh, Graham passed away. And what we didn't know at the time is he had a death and in service insurance policy on his uh, for, for the job that he had. Um, which none of us had any idea about. And the week before he died, we got the paperwork through saying there was like a significant chunk of money on his death. Now, I wouldn't, I'd give every penny I've ever had to have him back, but with um, a bit of a, oh, sorry. Okay. No, I understand. <laughs> it was, um, yeah, a, a, something of a parting gift that he didn't even know he was giving. That helped us because then we could afford to pay for a proper planning company to write us a planning application. Yeah. Um, it unlocked the full potential of your plan. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it, a beautiful thing. Yeah. Uh, and that, that really was, was the, the, the thing that really helped us get this enormous building, which is bigger than we need. Um, and we could do more with it. And it did cost us a lot of money in planning applications and planning fees. And I had to go and um, sit in front of the local planning committee. And I don't know if anyone's familiar with that. It's the most bizarre experience. There's a, a semicircle of, of tables of people looking at you. And I'm sitting in the middle of the semicircle with all these people looking at me. They put two minutes on a timer. And you have two minutes to pitch your case, and at the end of two minutes, that's it. Mm. So I had to, and I'd been rehearsing what I was going to say, so that it was bang on one minute fifty nine. Um, then they have a conversation, a debate in front of you, which you can't say anything. So they're asking questions, and I'm like, and I even said a couple of times, "I I can answer that," and they're like, "Sorry, no, we're not allowed to." It's like a mute dragon's den. It's like a mix between the voice and Dragon's Den it, by the sounds of. Oh, it's awful, and uh, but they agreed it and that the caveat they put on was that um this changing use of this building to sport and leisure didn't set a precedent so that other buildings in this estate couldn't do the same and um if we vacate this building it reverts back to light industrial use fine happy with that so we have a bigger building than we need that's quite expensive that we moved into um in uh early 2018 uh we kitted it out did most of the building work myself which i'm not a builder, but. I learned, I'd inherited a lot of tools yeah. and we, yeah, we built the mezzanine floor and we constructed most of it and had it all checked and, and signed off and um, I was like, wow. And here okay. we are, yeah, the academy are. was born. It was. Um. it Kinetic or kinet- kinet- Kinetics? Kinetics, Team Kinetics. Team Kinetics. Um, and, and that came from a
0: conversation in a pub saying, well, yeah. well, we'll start our own business. How hard can it be? And so this conversation in a pub, this is the business you've been running since 2018. This is what you do with most of your day? Yeah, so I
1: actually started, the, the limited company that runs this place um, was formed in 2015. Before that, I was working self-employed um, under the name Kinetics since 2009. Okay. So we'd been team Kinetics for that long. We had a, a couple of uh, rocky moments. So at uh, the beginning of 2019, uh, we were treading water. We weren't quite making enough money uh, to, to make the place work because we'd moved towns. Hadn't done a lot of advertising because I'd never really dabbled with advertising and marketing. And it was a bit of a struggle. And it was always very much like, well, we'll make it happen. We'll make it happen. It was, and things are tough. Um, my, my wife was, uh, was doing the admin and working for us. And we were just talking work all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, January 2019, so we'd been open for just under a year. On, a, on a Friday night, uh, she said, I, it's, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going. I'm done. And, and my wife left me. And yeah. So I'm now she said she'll continue to do the admin until we can hand over something. But I'm like, now I'm kind of here. On my own. That was on the Friday night. I didn't I came into work, I didn't tell anyone, um, because you know, you've got to get on with it. On the Monday morning, I get a phone call um to let us know uh, to, to let me know that um Abos, one of our coaches, had um had passed away the previous night. So I'm like he was not only one of my best friends, um, he worked here for And it was sudden and
0: unexpected, was
1: Yeah. It? yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah yeah he he'd had he'd been troubled he'd had some knee injuries and he'd been suffering quite struggling on his own, but he didn't really talk about it he was mm. he was a confidant to everyone else he was everyone else's rock and and, and yeah it, it got to i mean me when it way. when it rains, it pours i guess. yeah so that was a bad week, and as a result i I didn't tell anyone and this is something I, I i would to anyone listening like if you've got things going on in your head, talk to someone doesn't matter who but you've got to talk to someone, and that's not just off the back of our boss, but I didn't tell anyone close to me that my wife had left me for months after she had because I didn't want to take away from everyone's grief about about the coach so I de- dealt with that on my own and that year the business didn't develop at all you know I'm treading water in my life I'm trying to get my bits together and anyway so I just started getting my stuff together and and I'm like right okay start again we're going to have a new big push on the academy I'm going to change the way we do all of our memberships I'm going to start trying to do more work with with young people that um that from the, the care system. There's a massive project for the people in the care system that I was really passionate about because I was raised by a man who wasn't my biological father and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. So there's people out there that want to take in kids that, that perhaps are just dotting around the system and then 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 we need to give these kids something to do and show them that me from not the same background, but at least a a, a related well, f- background. From a standing start. Yeah. You you can you can do whatever you want, you just you just got to do it, you know, and, and, and don't, don't take no for an answer. You know, don't, I don't know. so, um, so we, we, got this project agreed and I was absolutely over the moon. And on the 13th of March, 2020, we got this huge project agreed Then the gate fell. Yeah. And uh, COVID, COVID. <laughs> so we had a couple of years and to, to sort ourselves out, but actually now coming back, um, COVID we were making, I was making videos in my living room and just trying to be active and trying to get people to still engage. We've come back after COVID and we've hit all the rules and done that. Um, And we're now in this cost of living crisis. Our landlord wants to put our rent up. Our membership is treading water, but um, I've gone back to what I wanted to do and things I wanted to do in in Graham's memory, which is where we're at now. So I've got the Academy. I'm working on various productions for the English National Opera, who have also just lost all their funding. Um, And the things I want to do is working with those kids who perhaps don't have a lot um so we're setting up warm safe spaces around colchester with the youth service up there providing hot nutritious meals um so meals that aren't just pizza and chips and burgers are actual good hot nutritious meals for kids um at three sites a week uh, that's gonna be we're gonna be doing that over the winter um so some activity i don't care if they love parkour or they just want to come in and have some food it's a warm safe space for those kids from low-income families and from people living in the care system, looked after children, or those at risk of offending, got somewhere to be. Mm -hmm. We're also uh, giving out free memberships um, for people that we identify as having need here, and that's funded by Essex County Council and the Youth Service for Mid-Essex. So they've given us, or they've agreed to a number of memberships so we can identify people. You know, when people come into the academy, and it might be that a customer's card's declined a couple of times, or... Someone contacts us and says, Oh, I can't afford that. And we try and keep our prices really low. Our class is £6.30, £6.80 an hour if, uh, if, they're, if they're on a membership. Try and keep them low. And I haven't put my prices up since 2020 because if I put my prices
0: up, that's going to be. In, It'll alienate uh, a bunch of people. Whereas our costs have gone through the roof. Yes. So you're not alone. I think you know, it's, 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 it's crucial to say at this moment we're recording this, uh, everyone's in the same boat. Hmm. And what I what I find is, as you say, we need to kind of pull together yeah. and keep things alive and keep the kindling burning. And and I, I don't mean to cut you off. We do have to wrap up fairly soon. But how I would love to hear about stories of going into to schools and just you know sparking kids' imaginations and getting them to even think that something like this is possible just from jumping around. So I'd love you to maybe wrap up on one final happy sure. story that has inspired someone. Yeah, I think we've got a few. We've certainly
1: got a few over the years, but one of my favorites um, was when we were working uh, out on site with, um, with children, uh, looked after children, children from the care system. When people talk about working with young people, uh, they they often say it's very rewarding. And, and that's true, that's true. Over a long period of time, it's rewarding, but working with children can also be incredibly frustrating because um, they don't really understand the outcomes and they just wanna play or they might be having a bad day or anything. And I'm now a very, very different coach to how I was a few years ago. I I still have standards and discipline, but I try and look for why are kids behaving that way rather than just dealing with stop doing that, stop doing that, stop misbehaving. I'm trying to – what's going on at home? Can we support that kid? Can we make that kid feel loved rather than – and that comes from a lot of work specifically with these kids. We were working with um, unaccompanied minors who are refugees, and that's quite a polarizing subject, uh, and I don't care about the politics – these are genuine children who came here without any adults looking after them. Don't care what the politics are. Those kids need looking after. And, and we were working with a group from all over. Some of them did speak English, some of them didn't. And there was a, a young girl, and she must have been, she can't have been older than 10, sitting in the corner, arms folded, head down, didn't want to join in with any of the activities. And we're kind of beckoning her over, and she didn't want to do it. And the other kids were, were kind of getting into it and running and jumping and just kind of happy someone's engaged. This is a, pro- like a project for these kids just to, to get them to socialize and to do something. And this little girl, after about half an hour, kind of came over and stood on one of the blocks and then jumped off and then went and sat down again. And by the end of that session, I think we were there probably two hours in total uh, with this group. She was jumping on and off the blocks with this massive smile on her face. And it was one of those absolute immediate reward to see that girl's face. And to have no idea what her background was, but to know that she'd arrived here somehow in a truck or a boat or however she got here with no parents, no grown-ups looking after her, doesn't speak the language. And that day she had fun. And I think that's that, you know, all of the talking in schools and all of the trying to inspire people and, and trying to tell people you can do whatever you want with your life. If you've set a spark in one of those kids, then great. But for, for me, that was one of the most rewarding moments. And one of them, I think we'd had the biggest impact that day mm. to see that child just in a couple of hours, feel safe, enjoy herself and maybe start to engage with, okay, I, I, I'm i okay here. I'm all right. And so that was, that was one of my
0: favorite moments ever. Amazing. Well, Brad, this has been a phenomenal conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking us on that road and to go back to the quote, you know, I think Graham still lives on. It's clear. Graham still lives on financially, spiritually, and clearly in the work you're doing. Um, So I'd love to chat some more another time, but uh, that's enough for today's episode. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for having us here to look look at the Academy. Thanks for listening to this episode of our podcast. Uh, If you like what you hear, you can dive into a lot more on thesparkhub.com.